online, on digital radio and television, and on the ABC Listen app. The Tasmanian Country Hour with Larissa Smith on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Great to have you along wherever you're listening, on the radio or the ABC Listen app. As the competition watchdog launches its investigation into supermarket prices, we're going to take a bit of a deep dive into the Horticulture Code of Conduct. Is it working? And are farmers better off? When the time came to introduce that mandatory code of conduct, the chain stores talked their way out of being on it because they said they had their own code within themselves. So that the mandatory code of conduct now is upon the merchants here in the market, whereas Woolworths and Coles were exempt. And agri-food business Taz Foods shares its plans for its pine garnered cheese brand in the state's northeast. So at the moment, we're processing around 800,000 litres per annum and we're looking to expand that to 1.4 million litres over the next two to three years. More milk required from that lush Pine Garner Valley to fill production demands for Taz Foods. That story in about 20 minutes from now. Also ahead, does the mining industry have a bit of an image problem? Financial services firm Deloitte looks at why this might need addressing if it's to recruit more people and keeping them for longer. Happy to hear your thoughts too on any of our stories. 0438 is the number to text me this afternoon. Larissa Smith with you. Great to have you along for Monday's edition of the Country Hour. Well, let's kick off with poppies because the harvesting of alkaloid poppies across the state is underway, albeit a little slower than what processors and growers would like. The material contained in the poppy capsule is a key ingredient in pain relief medicines, but it can be pretty fragile. If too much wind knocks it around, coupled with wet weather, that's what happens. It's, it's, not, it's not a happy plant. Noel Bevan from Extract Taz Bioscience says, despite this, it's shaping up to be a pretty decent crop. Yes, uh, Larissa, well, it's been a, a most interesting season. Uh, most of them are. This one's no different. Um, we, uh, we were somewhat delayed with some of our sowing, and um, that's been reflected in the uh, maturity dates a little bit. Um, I guess the most interesting uh, feature has been the summer rains, um, particularly uh, just prior to Christmas, uh, through the Christmas period and and into the new year. There were very significant falls, uh, up to 120 mils um, in the central northwest area. When growers are growing these crops and they're irrigating them uh, in a dry period, uh, to then get 120 mil on top, Um, In some cases, there were several falls of uh, 20 to 50 millimetres of rain. So, you know, um, it promotes uh, a fantastic amount of extra growth. And everyone that grows poppies knows how well they respond to water uh, in that uh, flowering period. We've got some uh, fantastic crops sitting in the paddock that uh, are still not ready to harvest, which is a bit of a concern. The winds, extensive winds or high-strength winds, uh, last week uh, have played a bit of a um, damaging feature on some of those crops. But generally speaking, um, harvest is well underway. We'd be um, very close to 30% of the way through. Delayed starting in most areas uh, by up to a couple of weeks. 
but uh, we certainly are in harvest mode and uh, it's really nice to see the good crops coming in. And where did those first crops come off in the state? The first ones uh, were actually at Hollow Tree. The Don Valley's quite often earlier than there, but uh, this year Hollow Tree was the first cab off the rank and uh, we've since done some in the Don Valley. Uh, the northwest is now following on. Central North has been slow, uh, as has been the Central Northwest around Sassafras, Devonport. Um, but all those areas are now starting to uh, crank up, and uh, this week the harvesters will be going uh, across the bulk of the state. But having said that, there are some crops within all those areas uh, that are not ready to harvest yet that are, are hanging on and uh, extra growth and all that sort of thing. Uh, but generally speaking, the yields are very pleasing. Can humidity play a problem when it comes to harvesting poppies? Certainly can. Uh, poppies uh, hang on to the moisture from overnight or during the day when it's uh, damp and humid. Warm, sunny conditions with a slight breeze are ideal. Uh, so certainly humidity can make the uh, capsules uh, too damp to harvest properly. And, of course, uh, we have to be able to get it... Um, uh, below 16% to um, to store safely in our storage shed. So, um, yeah, humidity can be an issue. It's a bit of a catch-22 because you probably want some wind to dry that dew out or the humidity or the moisture, but you don't want too much wind to, to damage the capsule and, and the, all the seeds spill out. No, look, that's exactly right, Larissa. Uh, typical farming, rarely do you get everything you produce. Something will take a percentage of it normally, whether it's undersized in some crops or, or bruising or whatever it might be. Uh, we've been lucky that uh, the, the heavy falls of rain, we haven't had wind with them. And uh, uh, wind with rain is uh, the poppy grower's enemy at this time of year. And luckily we've only had uh, one or the other not combined so far. So that's been a blessing. But uh, certainly the strong winds of uh, mid last week, they're dangerous to be out in really. You don't know what's going to happen. You know, de- even taking a tarp off a truck, they can uh, get away from you and be flying around and all that sort of stuff. Um, plus it's near impossible to load the uh, the trucks properly out of the harvesters. Uh, so there were um, uh, there was one day in particular last week when we didn't work uh, because of the wind. But uh, hopefully that's abated. Is it too early to tell if there's a, a figure on um, how much damage the wind has caused or is it just more observational? Mainly observational at the moment uh, and I don't know that we'd ever have a figure on how much damage the wind has caused and it doesn't damage every crop. Uh, there'll be some crops that will will suffer some loss but at this stage we're pretty lucky really. When were you likely to get some of those early assay results in? Uh, that's a process that takes a little while and uh, I dare say it'll be another couple of weeks before we get uh, many of those results coming in. We're hopeful of a, of a good uh, result. Uh, we've had a long drying out period. Uh, we haven't had the intense heat that normally you'd get in a summer. Uh, in fact, the number of days over 30 degrees uh, be very limited this year. So the crops had, um, you know, a chance to grow, to, to mature slowly. Uh, so um, it'll be interesting to see the results, but we're hopeful that they'll be uh, uh, very pleasing. Noel Bevan, he's the Field Operations Manager with Extract Has Bioscience, the state's largest poppy processor.
Well, as the ACCC begins its inquiry into supermarket prices, just how effective would a mandatory code of conduct be? At the moment, the supermarkets only have a voluntary code governing their relationships with farmers, but wholesalers operating through the nation's big central markets are governed by a separate hort code. So has that made a difference for farmers or consumers? David Clawton filed this report. Sean McInerney is a wholesaler at the Sydney markets and he buys and sells fruit and vegetables up and down the East Coast. He says the mandatory Hort Code, which was introduced in 2018, is working pretty well for farmers. Yeah, there's full transparency through the Hort Code. When you're trading on a product on a daily basis and you're in contact with your suppliers on a daily basis and they make the decision... He says instead of being price takers, growers can pick or choose which central market they want to sell in. They might have two or three uh, wholesalers in three or four different markets and they're not going to send somebody who's selling in 10 bucks tomorrow when someone else is selling in 15. But do they also know you know, what you've on sold it for and how much money you've made? Sure. Right, so that's something that's got to be published and, and be transparent and visible. He says there are very few cases of product being rejected by wholesalers because it doesn't meet specifications. But that's a big problem for suppliers to the major supermarkets. We know what our suppliers are doing. They know what they're doing because they've got a problem. They let us know. It's very, very, very rarely that happens. In your view, is that code working effectively to protect you and, and to protect your suppliers? Overall, it is. Uh, it is a little cumbersome. The problem is only about 40% of the nation's fruit and vegetables go through the central markets, and that's mainly sold to restaurants and independent grocers. Sean McInerney says 60% is going through the major supermarkets, and growers face a much tougher time selling to them. Um, The margins are pretty lean. Chris Cope is a consultant who runs Sydney Produce Surveyors, which monitors the prices of fruit and vegetable at the Sydney market. He says there are countless examples of price gouging and unfair practices at the supermarkets. Turmeric on the market is between 10 and about $15 a kilo. It's only a small line, but some of the shops are selling up to $50 a kilo. So the markup is pretty steep. And we, we used to have growers come to us and complain they weren't being paid on time. A whole range of things. He thinks there's a dark side to specials at the big supermarkets as well because they're used to push the price of fruit and veg down at the farm gate. Various times of the year when there are things that are on special, what they do is they, they buy up as much as they can and they dominate the market with their buying power and then they go on special and that forces the market down. What about a mandatory code? We've seen that work quite well in the dairy industry. There's a horticulture code of conduct. Could a mandatory code, on the, like a grocery code, on the supermarkets make a difference? <laughs> That's very interesting. We had one, and we have one now, which I don't know how well it's policed. I haven't, I haven't seen much action on that. In horticulture, you mean? In horticulture. I've seen a couple of merchants prosecuted. But... When that time came to introduce that mandatory code of conduct, the chain stores talked their way out of being on it because they said they had their own code within themselves. So that the mandatory code of conduct now is upon the merchants here in the market, whereas Woolworths and Coles were exempt. He worries that growers aren't getting paid enough to be sustainable in the long term. Some of the buyers, some of the, the work for the chain stores, are a little bit ruthless, or very ruthless. And they uh, 
they force the market to uh, to pay, you know, virtually the cost of production. And uh, we had I had an instance some years ago where I actually wrote an article having a go at, at uh, one of the Coles buyers. And I said to them, what, there's nothing wrong with high prices. Higher prices mean high margins, but when you push the prices down so low, it means that the growers don't get anything. And is concerned that farmers will be leaving the industry. You've got to have a sustainable industry. You've got to ha- have it for today and, and, and for it to be reasonably priced, but you want it for tomorrow and next week and the week after and the year after that. Mick Keogh, Deputy Commissioner of the competition watchdog, the ACCC, says several companies have been fined for breaches of the mandatory horticulture code, with the biggest fine being $240,000 for a South Australian potato processor. The problem there was under the arrangements or the contracts that Matalo had with its suppliers, they had no choice but to deliver all their potatoes to Matalo, and where those potatoes didn't make the grade um, Matolo uh, claimed it had complete discretion in relation to what they would do with those potatoes and the price they would pay for it. So, so you find them two hundred and almost quarter of a million dollars. Do you, did you follow up to see whether things got better afterwards? Uh, yes, that, that has substantially changed. They were required by the court to uh, remove uh, quite a range of onerous contracts and there have been four or five other uh, matters we've taken and uh, had similar results. So you know, we think the improvement we see in relation to horticulture is that least traders are now putting their terms of trade up and entering into a horticultural produce agreement so that growers actually know what the terms of their uh, engagement with their wholesaler is. Previous to that, it was all word of mouth and a handshake. And of course, when things go wrong, um, it's very difficult to enforce word of mouth and a handshake. The other thing, which is a bit left field, but uh, Chris Cope mentioned that in the US, for example, they have antitrust laws. So the supermarkets in Australia, which have about a 30% share each, might be limited to just 15%. Is that something the ACCC is looking at? Um, we look, It's too early in our consideration to, to talk about what we might recommend, but certainly um, the, the classic case in the US antitrust uh, uh, is the Bell Telephone Company, which was forcibly broken up. Um, it was uh, it was uh, made to divest in and split itself up because it was considered too dominant. Now that hasn't been uh, a power available under competition law in Australia. Um, whether it's um, something that might be considered, um, uh, you know, it's, I guess that's really a question for government. But it will depend, I suspect, on uh, the findings of our uh, investigation, and 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 that will be forthcoming in the in the next twelve months. Mick Keogh from the ACCC, ending that report from David Clawton. There's also a federal Senate inquiry looking at price-setting practices and the market power of the major retailers. Submissions for that inquiry closed last Friday. It's certainly a pretty complex beast selling fruit and vegetables in Australia. We're talking mining trends next. G'day, this is Becky Cole inviting you to join me each week for Saturday Night Country. For more than 30 years, we've been playing the best in Australian country music, as well as the overseas artists that you know and love. So whether it's the classic tunes that you grew up with, the best new releases, or the interviews of your favourite acts, you'll find it all on Saturday Night Country. Saturday Night Country, here at any time on the ABC Listen app. You're with Larissa Smith 
on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Where it's 21 past 12. Well, the Australian mining and resources industry needs to address its image problem if it's to attract staff in a bid to play a critical role in energy transition. That's according to financial services firm Deloitte, which has just released its 16th annual Tracking the Trends report. Other trends identified this year include creating social momentum, navigating global uncertainty and going back to exploration grassroots. Deloitte Australia's mining and metals leader Nikki Ivory says there will be some bumps in the road in 2024 that the industry will need to tackle. The trend we're seeing over the last few years is obviously this massive focus on ESG. The climate, yes, absolutely, the environmental, the social, the governance, they're all really important and that theme has just been rising and rising over the last few years. We sort of take a slightly different look at that here to say, yes, that's really still important and it is one of our themes. But we also know that the mining industry has a bit of an image problem and we're going to need a lot of people to work in this industry to meet the demand that's coming through, you know, the critical minerals and other minerals that are going to feed into the energy transition. So how do we actually address that? How do we get people to want to come and work in mining? And so one of the things we've... um, anchored in this report is that purpose-centred or purpose-centricity, I guess, that we're seeing as a bit of a movement in the world. You know, in consumer businesses, that's been well understood, but in mining hasn't necessarily embraced that fully. And so part of the sort of looking at the image is how do you articulate a purpose? And obviously, authentically, it is not window dressing. This has got to be real that will then be the centre of how you attract people to your business, how you break some of those um, skill shortage issues, how you bring different skill sets into your business. So technology, we all know the future is about data and technology, yet those people traditionally might choose to go and work for a you know, Google or Microsoft. How are you going to persuade them? Mining is the place to be. And so it's it's something I've been talking about for a few years, the sort of image. We've got to get away from that mining is dirty image to that actually mining can be really quite sexy in terms of all the different career opportunities. And so this this anchor point in our report on purpose, put your purpose there, make it attractive, have a narrative so that you can sort of bring in the the millennials who are really, really looking at that. You've called this social momentum. How is that different to what we heard sort of a decade ago with social licence to operate? How is that different? So social licence to operate is, is, I guess, part of the social momentum, but it's almost bigger than that now. Um, you know, this millennials sort of movement, if you want to call it that, this they want to do something that has purpose for them that they can, uh, and I think fundamentally all of us, it's not just the millennials, we all want to do work that we can see has meaning and that somehow gives back into society. And so I think the social momentum is additive to that social licence piece. It's, It's a bit of a movement that's happened in the world in the past decade, and so it's another layer on top of that social licence. Now, another trend that you've outlined is 
looking at the uncertain business environment, which we know that you know many mining companies have experienced in the last 12 months, and helping miners to, to navigate that uncertain time, which I'm assuming, given that you've identified it as a trend, you're expecting to continue? I mean, if I had a crystal ball, um, I would know for definite whether or not it will continue. But, you know, all the indications we're seeing is that these are pretty entrenched geopolitical issues that we're seeing at the moment, the, the war in, the, in Ukraine and then the Middle East conflict more recently. And so, and, and there are other geopolitical hotspots that are not necessarily at that scale yet. So it, it feels like we are in a, you know, a reasonably longer term period of, of instability and uncertainty. And how we navigate through that is really important as, as companies. If, if you just go into it without any thought of how you can flex and how you can adapt, you know, you're, you're not going to come out as well as those who perhaps go in a little bit better prepared for how, how do you flex and how do you adapt. And so you've got to build capacity in your management teams, in your organisation to be able to still thrive even with all the disruption and something could happen tomorrow. It, it just feels like that in the world at the moment. Something else could happen tomorrow. So how do you react to that? How do you deal with it? It's, it's that building that capacity in the organisations that I think we're calling out here. Deloitte Australia's mining and metals leader, Nikki Ivory, speaking there with Tara Delangraft. News and weather, uh, not too far away. But before that, let's talk cheese. A number of Tasmanian dairy producers have made it on to the winners list for the 2024 Australian Grand Dairy Awards, including Taz Foods, which took out the top cheddar for its Pine Garner traditional cloth matured cheddar. It's a product which it hopes to export soon on the back of further investment in the northeast business. David Gertzka is the company's general manager for sales and marketing. Look, from a from a judge's perspective, they were very happy with with the quality, the consistency, the flavour, and the texture of the cheese, which really just ties back into how we've been making that cheese for 130 years. A little bit of context behind the cheese itself. Where is it produced? So it's actually produced uh, in the Pine Garner region uh, at the Pine Garner Valley. All our milk is locally sourced from the farmers in the valley and it is a very well-known area for the, the green pasture, the clean air and everything that uh, actually occurs in that valley is a testimony to the cheese that we can produce. There are some layers to the ownership structure of this cheese though. Can you explain who's involved from, like you said, the, the milk produced to the herd yep. to the cheese itself? Tess Foods, uh, we bought the brand uh, Pine Garner Cheese uh, a number of years ago. We managed the ca local cafe and the cheese making facility at Pine Garner itself. And we actually buy all their, our milk from the locally um, produced farmers up there in the region. Everything actually comes from the valley itself. So Taz Foods has offloaded a, a number of its brands in the last few years. Why have you decided to hang on to Pine Garner Cheese? Pine Garner really ties back into the, the motto of Taz Foods that we, we want to be known for Tasmanian local provenance and, and quality products. And we see Pine Garner as a really good fit for that. And we want to make sure that we're investing uh, our money into the right areas. And we see Pine Garner as one of those really good growth markets, and especially on the back of this uh, 2024 award that we just received. So what will be involved for you in 
this coming year in terms of uh, putting further investments into the brand and, and looking further afield to, to sell it? Absolutely. So our big target at the moment is to actually look at getting export accreditation uh, and actually be able to take our cheese to the world. Last year, I'm not sure if you're aware of it, but we actually uh, received a silver award at the International Cheese Show in London for our same cheese that we just won our award for the other night. We are looking to yeah, ramp that up and uh, make sure that everyone in the world has access. What's involved in getting accreditation? Uh, to get accreditation, we've got to do some work at the, at the Pine Garner Dairy itself. We uh, need to upskill our people. We will need to put some investment into capital. And we're just going to make sure that we uh, tick off all the boxes for um, agricultural purposes. Six months ago the company sold off Better Milk and the Meander Valley Dairy Brands and uh, saying at the time, this is back in August, that mm-hmm. the move would leave the company debt free. Has that happened? Yes it has. And so you're planning to use some of the capital that you raised from those the sale of those assets to reinvest back into Pine Garner Cheese? Yes, it's all about reinvesting back into the brands. What about expansion of um, milk production? If you're planning to to export, you obviously yes. you'll need uh, more cheese to do that. Yes, there is um, ample milk that does come out of the uh, the Pine Garner Valley. So at the moment, we, we're processing around eight hundred thousand liters per annum, and we're looking to expand that to one point four million liters over the next two to three years. And you're confident you'll have access to that milk yeah, supply. Absolutely. Absolutely. There is actually a a good abundance of milk coming out of the valley. And you can match the prices that are being offered by some of the other companies because it's a a pretty competitive market right now. It's a very competitive market, but we're not trying to match our competitors. We've got a very distinctive product uh, that we believe can take, sorry, can take the, uh, the premium price, the way that the cheese is made. It is still cloth-bound, it is hand-pressed, it is literally still a handmade product. David Gertzka, Taz Foods General Manager for Sales and Marketing. Thanks, Ellie. Did you know Australia is the world's largest exporter of tallow? It's a livestock byproduct and it used to be used as cooking oil, also known as dripping, which was a bit before my time, but it's a big market in biofuels. And you're going to hear more from some of the key players in the industry in just a tick. And how do you feel about letting your tractor loose in the paddock without you driving it? The wine industry is the latest to dip its toe in the autonomous vehicle space. How do they work in a vineyard? We'll stick around to find out. But first, let's check in with the Weather Bureau for Monday's Outlook. Luke Johnston has all the details for us. Um, Luke, any rainfall around? Yeah, good afternoon, Larissa. Look, in the last 24 hours, well, the 24 hours to 9am today, I should say, uh, there was around 1 to 5 millimetres of rainfall, more into the southwest of the state. Uh, Mount Sucker Island had 24 millimetres, so obviously it was a rain band very much uh, over the southwest, but it did spill over everywhere else uh, during Sunday. Uh, overnight last night, there were a few thunderstorms about the uh, north and northeast of the state, but they've all cleared away to the northeast uh this morning and for the remainder of today not expecting a great deal a few showers into the west coast and a couple of relatively light showers developing about the upper part of the east coast but remaining dry elsewhere 
going forward for the next couple of days, it doesn't look like we'll see much in the way of significant rain or wind or temperatures, so a fairly uh, fairly benign week ahead, Larissa. Oh, that's what we want. We're so sick of this wind. <laughs> so I know. It'll be good to have a wind-free week. Yes, the uh, n- most notoriously hated w- uh, weather phenomena is, is wind, I think. <laughs> yes. I think I've only spoken to one or two people that like wind, and they're always a little bit strange. Yes, yes. Okay, and they don't work at the bomb? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're usually like extreme, um, extreme sailors or kite people or something. Okay, so if it's fairly benign, just with temperatures, yeah. mid-20s, so, high-20s? Today, 23 in Hobart, expected maximum. It's a little bit warm up north, up to 28. Uh, but tomorrow, temperatures into the, the low 20s. And that sort of continues right through the week. Eventually, we climb up to the, the mid-20s, uh, mid to high 20s for the end of the week. But it's still, it's fairly benign. It's not necessarily hot nor cold. It's close to average for this time of the year, which is, it's nice. And on that long-range forecast, can you can you see when the next significant rainfall event is coming? Are we getting anything from this uh, this next cyclone that's forming um, in the northern half of the country? No, unfortunately, it looks like that system's going to go over sort of it's inland Queensland at the moment, going over Canberra and then out to the Tasman Sea. Doesn't look like Tasmania is going to get much in the way of significant rainfall for at least the next week, week and a half. Um, but that's starting to get towards the limits of, of what we can do. But it does look like a relatively dry period to, to round out our summer. Uh, it does look like the middle of next week could be fairly warm, though, with temperatures probably in the high 20s or, or low 30s if, if things don't change. OK. What about coastal waters today? Uh, coastal waters, west to southwesterly, 15 to 25 knots, reaching up to 30 knots at times about the north and about the south and lower east from the, the middle of today. Winds easing 10 to 20 knots throughout this evening. Tomorrow, west to southwesterly, 10 to 20 knots, although southeasterly in the northeast, becoming west to northwesterly throughout during the day, reaching 30 knots again in the far south during the afternoon. The swell today and tomorrow about the west and south is a southwesterly 2 to 4 metres, decaying to 1.5 to 2.5 metres tomorrow. Through Bass Strait, a consistent westerly to around 1 metre, and the east coast has got a south to southwesterly one to two metre swell and also a northeasterly one to two metres that uh, decays to around one metre tomorrow. Significant wave height of three metres on the uh, west coast at the moment. Any warnings? Yeah, warnings-wise, a strong wind warning for northern waters between Sandy Cape to Cape Portland and eastern and southern waters from Wineglass Bay to Low Rocky Point. Also for Frederick Henry, Norfolk Bay and Storm Bay today. Tomorrow, just a strong wind warning current for the southeast and southwest coasts. Lovely. Thank you, Luke. Thanks, Theresa. Luke Johnson there at the Weather Bureau. He's still the Premier, he's still been governing, and I have not broken my deal. Mornings with Leon Compton. It's very disingenuous. Obviously, the Premier is the only person that can call the Governor and call for an election. I, I can't do that. So even if he's turning around and saying it's John and I's fault, the way he's crafted this whole thing, it, it actually indicates that there was never a genuine desire to continue to govern. Leon Compton. Weekday mornings from 8.30 on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. On ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania, you're with Larissa Smith. Great to have you along this Monday lunch hour. We're going to head overseas now because farmers protesting across Europe are hopeful a policy to set aside 4% of their arable land 
will be paused for a year and allow them to plant more crops. It basically translates to an extra 50 million hectares of cropping going in the ground and clearly has flow-on effects for the grain market and prices. Grain market analyst Andrew Whitelaw says the EU's set-aside policy has been around for a long time and is a big part of the region's environmental programs and subsidy regimes. At its most basic level is farmers have to set aside 4% of their arable land or their cropping land to unproductive purposes, so fallow effectively. So they can't grow a crop on 4% of the land. And so that is how they get their subsidies or a lot of their subsidies. But what's happened is the last three or four months, you might have seen, and I think you guys have covered it on ABC, a lot of farmer protests in Europe, a lot of tractors going down uh, the, the sort of capital cities in, in European nations. And this is a proposed policy from the EU Commission is to temporarily for one year uh, get rid of this set aside for 4% and allow farmers to crop 100%. And, uh, and that's, that is significant. What are the implications of that? If you look at Europe as a, as a trading bloc, you're talking about 50 million hectares of cropping ground. So you're talking 4%, might not sound like much, but it's significant, especially just to be put into action in a, in a short period of time. And so if, if I just take some sort of back of the uh, cigarette packet sort of numbers, potentially, you know, 5 million tonnes of wheat, potentially half a million to a million tonnes of canola. And that's a significant volume of grain to come onto the market. Why is the EU considering this? Yeah, so in, in part it's to sort of placate these protesters in Europe. Uh, farmers are, you know, same as in Australia, but probably worse over there. They are facing uh, significant increases in input costs, especially since the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And so their costs are rising. But at the same time, you know, we've got some fairly rampant food inflation over there. Like I was in the UK just in over Christmas and I couldn't believe that cost of beer two years ago from £2.50 to £6.50. But what this does is it puts more food onto the market, which has the potential of reducing the cost of food. So they're looking at it as a two-pronged approach. Placate farmers, placate consumers, and allow that for a year. There is some caveats in that the farmers who want this exemption have to plant 7% of their crop to nitrogen-fixing crops. So we may see an increase in some crops as well, like see lentils as an example, I think, would be one that they could go for, and peas. But it's a really interesting change because it has always been a sort of a thing that they would never touch is a set-aside policy. How likely is it that the EU is going to approve this and, and remove this set-aside policy? Well, it seems like a, this is obviously only a temporary uh, reprieve for, for one year, for 2024, and the vote is due to come in in the next couple of days. Who knows, but I think it's got a fairly reasonable chance of success. And what does it mean back here in Australia for the industry for growers? Look, it's, it's definitely one to watch for. I believe that Europe is always one to keep an eye on, especially in Western Australia for canola. If they do see huge acreages going in for canola this year, Let's say that even on the low end, you produce another 500,000 tonnes of canola or rapeseed that reduces their demand for, for Australian canola.
and uh, that has serious implications because we trade you know upwards of 60 percent of our canola will go to europe on an average year so what could be the implications for prices then obviously downward pressure but any kind of a scale of what we might be looking at look it's too early to say like this isn't even gone through the parliament but as we all know uh, supply and demand is what drives markets and if we have big supplies coming onto the marketplace then that only has downward pressure. Mm. Well, it's definitely something for growers to be watching. I mean, we're just sort of in that preparation stage here in Australia, aren't we, looking at the season ahead and what to, what to plant, what not to plant. Should this be a factor that farmers are considering? Look, I think when we're looking at planting decisions, I think are one of the hardest things a farmer can do. The one thing I've always said to farmers is don't look at the price at seeding to help you decide that because... There's no real relationship between the price of seeding and the price of harvest. Speak to your agronomist and find out what is the best thing for you to grow, but forget about price. Look at the agronomics. What, what are you going to get the best yield for? What is going to support your soils the best? Because again, unless you're going to sell it straight away, price of seeding has no relevance to the price at harvest. Andrew Whitelaw, Grain Market Analyst at Episode 3, chatting there with Belinda Varaschetti. And I'm sure we'll be hearing more about those farmer protests overseas. French farmers have been particularly active in the last month or so. They've blocked traffic, uh, dumped manure and rotting produce in front of government buildings to make their point about increased production costs. The French certainly know how to protest and... um, Let's see if they get some action there because it's it will have um, widespread ramifications. Hey, we're going to be talking about autonomous vehicles in the wine industry shortly, but let's turn our attention to tallow. From dripping on bread to biofuels, global demand for Australian tallow is surging. It's used across several industries, making it one of the nation's most versatile yet unknown exports. Megan Hughes has this story. Australian tallow exports exceeded $1 billion for the first time in 2023, according to a recent Department of Agriculture report. You may know the animal byproduct by its other name, dripping. Historically, it was used as a cooking oil. If you go back to the 40s and 50s, there'd be many a person who had dripping on bread. They say that the uh, potato chips cooked in dripping or, or tallow is uh, have the most flavoursome chips. That's Terry Nolan, the director of Nolan Meats, an abattoir in Gympie in southeast Queensland. More than 100 years ago, tallow was rendered into drums in Australia and it was sent to the United Kingdom to be used as cooking oil or making candles. Mr Nolan explains how it's done in a modern operation. Most modern meatworks have a rendering plant alongside. So when you have like your bones and and uh, fat that you don't pack for human consumption, they get uh, rendered, uh, dry rendered into uh, both meat meal and tallow. The meat meal cake, if you like, goes through a press where they extract the tallow. Despite its start in kitchens around the world, tallow has become incredibly versatile. It's now used in animal feed to enhance protein, in cosmetics, and even to make biofuels, which has driven global demand. And Australia is the world's largest exporter, according to Meat and Livestock Australia analyst Tim Jackson. He says it's mostly going to one destination. The United States 
has recently seen the development of, of biofuel industries where tallow is an important input to produce the fuel. And so in the last two or three years, slightly over half of our tallow has gone to the United States. The other large market for Australian tallow is Singapore, and tallow is exported there partially for the biofuels purpose, but also for other industrial processes. And aside from those two, which would make up over 90% of tallow exports over the last few years, smaller amounts go to China and South Korea, and then considerably smaller amounts go to a range of other countries. The American biofuel industry made headlines last year when the first commercial fossil fuel-free airliner crossed the Atlantic on a purely high-fat, low-emissions fuel from London to New York. Even as tallow production is restrained by its reliance on meat processing, Australian Renderers Association figures show the growth has continued, with production in 2023 reaching 550,000 tonnes, 450,000 of which were exported. Mr Jackson says prices grew too. At the end of, of 2023, prices were sitting at about $2,000 a tonne. Now that's down from... 2,300 to 2,500 that we saw earlier in the year in, in 2022. But that's well over double the price that we would have seen prior to 2020. Back home, one of the biggest appeals of tallow production is about reducing waste, according to President of the Australian Renderers Association, Peter Mulsheski, who represents the industry. Rendering has been ensuring waste is reduced or eliminated through repurposing for a very long time. And in actual fact, 50% of, you know, of the animal is inedible. And without rendering, that would go to landfill and waste. For renderers like Mr Nolan, it goes beyond just economic value. Everything has a home and it's the uh, meatworks operator to try and extract the maximum value of every product to try and keep beef affordable for consumers. But uh, it goes a bit deeper than that in a uh, ethical sense. You try to use every last bit of the animal so that we're not wasting products. It's just good business not to waste things. In Australia, tallow is primarily used in animal feed and feedstock, but there's a growing popularity in cottage industries like Nish Murphy's. She started making her own skincare products at her home on the Sunshine Coast using locally sourced tallow during her second pregnancy, eventually creating an online business. We wet render, so we use water, and this helps to get like the scent out and to get it as pure and clean as possible because the impurities come out with the water. From there, we blend it and we just add whatever um, additional ingredients we've got in each of the product. Ms Murphy is slowly scaling up production to meet growing demand, but she's been struggling to find large-scale tallow suppliers because of this demand overseas. That story from Megan Hughes with additional reporting from Jennifer Nichols. And for more on that story, just head online to the ABC Rural website. I had no idea it was a $1 billion industry. But I have heard that some high-end restaurants in Tasmania are using tallow and uh, that boutique pork producers that sell it can't keep up with demand. I wonder if you're going back to using dripping uh, with your cooking at home, if you're saving it as a, well, a cost-saving exercise rather than purchasing other oils like vegetable or canola or even olive oil, if, if you're using that again, 0438 922 936. I'd be interested to know.
Uh, it's coming up to 10 to 1. We'll, we'll catch up with Joel Reinberger, who can uh, give us a scoop on what's happening with his program this afternoon on Afternoons. But before that... One of Australia's largest wine grape producers is investing in driverless tractors, a move that could drastically reduce the number of lower-skilled staff the company needs on its remote properties. Duxton Vineyards produces 26 varietals, over 2,500 hectares across several states. Now, the company is trialling a tractor from New Zealand company Oxen, with plans to rapidly increase its driverless fleet if everything goes well. Elsie Kennedy has a story. That's the sound of an Oxen smart machine. It's a tractor without a driver that's remotely operated via a tablet. It was developed by a New Zealand company specifically for vineyards, and it can mow grass, trim suckers and spray weeds. It's the first one in Australia... And it was brought here by Duxton Vineyards, one of Australia's largest wine grape producers. Duxton Vineyards General Manager Wayne Ellis says he hopes it will save the company money in the long term. We're remote where we are now, so we're about an hour and a half from Mildura. Um, the machine is driverless uh, and we find it difficult to get employees, so it's not replacing an employee. It's doing tasks that we actually don't have employees in place to do. And it can do multiple tasks at one. And so one... Of these machines cost between three hundred and five hundred thousand dollars. How long do you think it'll take you to, to pay off the cost of that machine? Uh, one full year. How many of these machines do you think you might end up buying? All going well with this, and we get the extra R and D. So we're implementing some new machines that we would like to have inside the the Australian canopy. Twenty. If in the future you were to invest in twenty of these machines, they're replacing four staff each. That's about. 80 positions? Won't replace four staff each because you still need a controller. It changes your scope from uh, a farm operator to someone that's more technical advanced. So even for higher ed students that are in science or physics or IT, this is uh, a change in agriculture, horticulture, opposed to what we've seen that you're just a tractor driver. It actually changes and you're actually into automation which is robotics. Now, I wanted to, if possible, just briefly put this in context. There's been a few things happening with wine prices. Can you tell me a bit about what's happening with wine prices and how that's affected your business decision-making? Uh, well, the wine prices is challenging. So Australia is definitely an oversupply, but so is the globe. Um, the benefit of that over the last year, the globe has had a down harvest, which is starting to shrink the surplus globally which will improve the pricing in the next um, year or two. So the decision around it was made prior to uh, the glut, is what we call it. Um, It's more about our regenerative agriculture model. So when you look at uh, regenerative or or, uh, sustainable, it's the end-to-end. So it can do four jobs at once. So at the moment, that's a single tractor with a single implement using fuel Um, that can do four so we can do four jobs at once so a quarter reduction um, in fuel consumption um, means the truck comes up here 50 or 75 percent less which is that end-to-end sustainable opposed to what we're really doing compaction the weight of me standing in the vineyard 
would be the same as under that track vehicle. It's about four tonne, fully loaded with water, it's five tonne. But because it's tracked, its down pressure on the soil is better than me standing in the vineyard currently and opposed to a traditional uh, wheeled tractor. It's substantially less compaction and we do minimal tillage. So we used to herbicide the mid-row. What it's doing now is, is slashing the mid-row and that gives an organic and micro benefit. The technology we're doing and the infrastructure we're trying to do is use, get the most out of what we've got available and leaving the smallest footprint in, in the ground that we might now operate on. Smart Machines Australian representative Angus Cochrane says the company's first Australian trial has presented challenges, but he's hoping once the machine is adapted to Australian conditions, he'll be able to sell a lot of the machines. So currently we're running our first Australian Oxen, which is an autonomous vineyard tractor, and right now it is uh, slashing and defoliating. And so this machine's been built for, it's been built in New Zealand. Yeah, so it's custom built for New Zealand, so we're adapting to the Australian environment with this machine. Uh, One of our biggest problems with Australia is the temperature, so we have adapted for that with bigger cooling systems on our mechanical and electrical side, as well as dust. So we do have problems where we will come out of a row and with our current safety system that's designed for New Zealand we use LiDAR and with a big wall of dust coming up that does cause the machine to stop sometimes so our new never our new safety systems will be able to penetrate through that dust. That was Angus Cochrane ending that report from Elsie Kennedy. Interesting space, uh, autonomous vehicles. We've got a couple of texts coming through. Uh, we were talking earlier about tallow, also known as dripping back in the old days. Maggie says uh, it's her favourite tucker, dripping on toast. Uh, Gil says tallow is an animal product. When animal products were fed to cows, the results were disastrous. What animals are being fed tallow? I'm not exactly sure, but... Uh, All I know is big in the biofuels market. We're talking to Joel Reinberger just next. Start your day with the most important local stories, information and analysis from ABC Breakfast. Every morning we bring you the latest news and issues from across our region, the country and around the world. Hear from the people who make the headlines, the experts who explain them and listeners like you who challenge them. ABC Breakfast, the show that informs engages and empowers you every weekday from six on ABC radio or the ABC listen app.